I've reached that stage of life where many of the things I remember are unfamiliar with many of the people I know because they weren't there. The Jack Benny program is one of those things. If you remember the Jack Benny radio or television show, lift your hand. See, we're in the majority. That may be not a good thing. Well, a classic exchange of dialogue that was used repeatedly throughout the years on Mr. Benny's radio and television programs was that of a holdup man approaching Mr. Benny and demanding your money or your life. <laughs> and after a long pause, Mr. Benny would always plead, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Well, Jesus put a similar choice before a rich young man who came running up to him, panting, out of breath, looking for eternal life. Now, for a preacher who would like to preach a painless stewardship sermon, this is a very difficult passage of scripture to be handed. There's really no way we can pretend that it's not in the gospel. Its authenticity and its importance is verified by the fact that it appears in all three synoptic gospels. All three accounts begin with a man asking Jesus what more he must do to be saved and have eternal life. Matthew identifies the man as young. Mark tells us he was rich and has many possessions. And Luke describes him as a ruler. And thus we've come to know this story as the story of the rich young ruler. The radical demands of discipleship presented by Jesus in this encounter must have made an enormous impression on those early followers and on the young church, or else it wouldn't have been included in all the synoptic gospels. What can we today learn from the encounter that will be of value to us as we seek eternal life and face questions about the stewardship of those possessions God has entrusted to us. So we're talking about eternal life. What is eternal life? Is it pie in the sky, by and by, when I die? I suppose you could say that. But there is so much more to it. Eternal life is not a geographical location, but a state of being an experience with God in the life of God. In the New Testament, eternal life is also known as everlasting life, abundant life, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or simply as the kingdom. It was central to the message of Jesus. And everyone was invited to enter the kingdom and to share in its eternal life. So was the man who came running up to Jesus so very different from us? Whether it is possessions or some other type of worldly security, for most of us, there are loyalties and dependencies that stand between us and God. Following Christ demands a radical decision to let go of anything to which we are more attached than we are to him. Jesus never says it is necessarily wrong to possess wealth. 
then this is not a story about the virtue of poverty or the evils of riches. It's a story about the source of meaning and purpose and identity in our lives. Do I define myself or assign meaning to my life according to the material world and the possessions that I have? Or does my identity and my meaning come from God speaking to my inner being? Do I trust and cling to things as if they were my deities? Or do I trust and cling to God in a way that liberates me from bondage to things? Tithing and proportional giving are spiritual disciplines that acknowledge and help us remember that everything we have, whether spent, saved, or given away, is a sacred trust from God. We're not the, we're not the, uh, the creatures who've just been treated like all the rest of the creatures that inhabit this planet with us. We are the creatures God has appointed us as stewards of all of it. And what a blessing that is. What a privilege. What liberating knowledge. What a contrast to the situation of the rich young ruler who was possessed by his possessions. He could not let go of them. Jesus, Mark tells us, said what he said to the man because he loved him. He loved him. Now, by today's standards of pastoral care, most of you would be shocked if I said something like that to you. You would find it hard to believe I said it because I love you. And you'd probably prefer that I soft pedal it a bit and help you simply be more comfortable with your possessions. But are you really so fragile? Do you really need my protection? Is Jesus so powerless as not to be able to make us into the kind of disciples he demands? I fail the gospel if I don't love you enough to tell you the truth. Eternal life involves a radical choice. It is as hard for any one of us rich people to enter eternal life as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, really. Mortals cannot save themselves. Only God can do that. By God's grace, we can make the radical decision to be possessed by God alone, and that requires us to deal with our worldly possessions. And we can help each other with that. That's the point of this service today. After the encounter with the man, Jesus sat down and talked with his disciples about it. They had made the decisions. They had found themselves transformed. They felt something great happening in them because of Jesus, but they were still far from finished with the process of maturing in faith, just like you and just like me. But they sat together, and together they worked out their salvation. That's part of the texture of human life and the genius of the way of discipleship. Eternal life is meant to be shared. By the design of the Creator, the Christian life doesn't exist apart from the Christian community. 
God can and does work outside the church. But when God calls us, an essential aspect of this calling is to be a part of this redemptive, worldwide, age-long community. And it's there that the finest opportunities for growth and worship and service are to be found. As the love of God is manifested in our lives and in the life of the church, it quite naturally becomes tangible in the world outside those doors. My Christian sisters and brothers are a valuable part of my Christian life. They're an essential part. The community we share matters to me, to you, and to the message of the kingdom of God, eternal life. And that's why we come together week by week and engage in ministries to each other and to the world at our doorstep. Each member of the community is responsible for sustaining the life of the community by practicing spiritual disciplines, including the spiritual discipline of stewardship. When I was called to be your interim rector, the vestry told me we may have a problem in this area. And my own study of the giving patterns of our members confirms their assessment. And I've been told that a statistically large number of people don't give because they're under the impression that St. John's doesn't need their gifts. And as a result, this parish has become too dependent upon sources of income other than the tithes and offerings of its members. We rely too heavily on income from weddings at the Chapel of the Transfiguration. We rely too heavily on income from browse and buy. We rely too heavily on fundraising activities. Now, the problem with all this is threefold. First, to say that we don't give or we don't give more because the church doesn't need it misses the whole point of financial stewardship by assuming that it's all about the church's need to receive. Secondly, it assumes that it is up to those who are in a position to give larger sums of money to cover all the costs leaving me off the hook. And thirdly, it views the church as just another nonprofit, which it is not. While nonprofits are necessary and valuable to our life together, and they rely on fundraising as the source of their income for their missions, the church must rely primarily on its members who practice the spiritual discipline of stewardship. It is as central to our way of honoring God as are our prayers or our searching the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with fundraising, even in the church, and we probably will need to engage in it from time to time. But in the church, fundraising is never an appropriate foundation for the spiritual lives of its members or the pursuit of God's mission. God is the supreme giver, and we who understand ourselves to be created in God's image are destined to give in a godlike manner. Givers need to give, and for Christians, giving is a spiritual matter. 
So I'll say once again that this stewardship emphasis is not about the church's need to receive. It's about the giver's need to give. Of course the church benefits, but that's the result of the stewardship of the church's members. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness and all these things will be added. We're to put our spiritual health first and trust that the work of the church will be among all those things that will benefit. But if we started with trying to impress upon you how your gifts meet the needs of the church, that would be fundraising, not stewardship. So one of the most important and precious responsibilities I have as a priest is to help those given into my care to have a healthy relationship with their possessions. It is both my duty and my joy to speak with you directly about how steward, you steward the treasure God has given to you. And to that end, I recommend tithing. Our church teaches it. Our clergy are expected to teach it. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's an equitable and fair thing, as well as being a biblical minimum standard. Gay and I decided long ago that we would tithe. That is to give 10% of our household income to God through God's church, which we believe is God's primary instrument in the world. Now our parents practiced tithing, so it was already a part of our life when we married. And after we talked about it, we realized that we couldn't start tithing all at once. But we knew that ultimately, if we couldn't live on the 90% that was remaining after we gave the first 10% to God, we were living beyond our means. So we started with 2% and decided to work our way up a little bit every year. Well, we hardly noticed the 2% missing, and so we modified our plan to give more. We knew that the amount needed to be enough to make us mindful of how we steward all the rest. From time to time, we've had unexpected events and setbacks that have resulted in our giving less than a tithe. But we've remained committed to tithing, and with God's help, we always work our way back. For example, before we arrived at St. John's, I did not have a church in which to work for six months. And while we had saved for a rainy day, we hadn't saved for that much rain. <laughs> it's just one of the exigencies of interim ministry. So in the face of a sudden, dramatic, and extended reduction in income, we had to make some adjustments. As a result, our pledge at St. John's has been closer to 5% than to a tithe. I invite you to consider that um, the tithe is an important goal, and I'm happy to say that this year we have been able to recover and meet our other commitments, and so we're going to be able to double our giving and return to the practice of tithing here among you. It's sort of like a physical discipline where you work up to the level at which you're in peak condition as a runner or a climber or a swimmer or some other kind of athlete. You start wherever you can, 1%, 2%, 5%, and then you move up a step each year until you're able 
to tithe. The chart that was reviewed in last week's services and inserted in your bulletin today and, and will be on the back of the pledge cards you will be handed may be helpful to you in discerning where you are and where you want to go from here. But our invitation to you is to grow at least one step this year in your giving for your sake and the sake of the gospel. By the time you call your new rector, there should be evidence everywhere that you indeed are a people of glad and generous hearts who practice extravagant generosity. If there's one thing that needs to be resolved during a time of transition, it is the matter of money, and it has to be dealt with at the spiritual level by every member. Robert Wright is the Bishop of Atlanta. And I want to close with his reflection on this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. A man asked Jesus how to be eligible for forever. He kept all the commandments, but figured out there's more to God than commandments. So Jesus invited him deeper into a life with God, to a space beyond compliance with tradition. Sell your stuff, follow me. How did Jesus know it was the accumulation of things that cast a shadow over this spiritual adventurer? Intuition, reputation, who can know? We know he walked away sorrowful from Jesus' love-launched invitation. But that word, sorrowful, comes from a word that also means overcast, like our recent weather. Overcast, like something is standing between us and the radiance of the sun. Overcast, like warmth is reduced. Does Jesus oppose wealth? It depends. What Jesus seems to oppose is anything that keeps us from knowing God and God's fullness. How's the weather where you are? Amen. <laughs>